book of Philippians, starts with the Apostle Paul just super excited for the church at Philippi. And it's funny because Paul's in prison (laughs) while he's writing this letter. And yet he is joyful. He's thankful. This book, written by Paul to the church at Philippi, is, we need to remember, written by a man who started the church at Philippi to that church that started from absolutely nothing while he was there. It was a very humble beginning. This letter is many years after the fact, after he planted it, um, and it's likely written while Paul was in jail in Rome, although we don't know exactly where he may have been imprisoned. Uh, But as we start this book, I want you to see the sweetness that is in the relationship between Paul and this church. And I'm going to read from the first chapter, just the first 11 verses. And then we'll go into a little bit more of the history of how that church began, the relationship that Paul had with them. And then we're going to focus on that phrase that he gives in verse 5, that promise, that encouragement, that strengthening that he gives to them when he says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will perfect it. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right For me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness 
which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So a little bit of history. In the book of Acts, we read of the start of this church. We have recorded for us through Paul's missionary journeys, how he ends up in Philippi. And it's a fun story because Paul is not trying to go to Philippi. He's not trying to go into that area. He's trying to go up into Asia. And it says that he's prevented. And then... In Acts 16.9, we read this. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so that's the start of Paul changing direction and going over, not where he was intending to go, and eventually ending up in Philippi. So how does the church there start then? Again, there's something a little bit unusual about it. Most places that Paul went, the church started as he would go into the synagogue and preach. He would then usually get kicked out of the synagogue for preaching the gospel, and several people would go with him, and begin to worship by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. And that would be the beginning of the church. It started through the synagogues that were already present. But in Philippi, it's quite possible that there wasn't even a synagogue in the city, which would mean that there were so few Jews, all that was necessary for there to be a synagogue in a city would be for there to be 10 Jewish men to gather in the whole city. Paul doesn't mention, or the book of Acts doesn't record for us, Paul going into any synagogue in Philippi, but rather that he finds a few women gathered for prayer down by the water to pray. And so he goes, and that's where he begins his work of teaching and preaching the gospel in the city of Philippi. So it's a, it's a very different sort of start than going into an established synagogue and preaching there and it being a, uh, a conflict, right? Now... What happens in Philippi after that is not much different in some ways. Paul ends up in jail, just as he often does as he's doing the work of planting churches. And if you have ever heard, remember the name, the Philippian jailer, well, that's the jailer who was in the city of Philippi, right? 
What happened with the Philippian jailer is a wonderful story of God adding to that church in unexpected ways. Here is this man who is scared that he's about to be executed, so scared that he's ready to just kill himself. Why is he so scared? Because God has set the prisoners free. Who are those prisoners? Well, Paul is one of those prisoners. Paul and his companions stop the jailer from harming himself, preach the gospel to him, and he is saved. He is baptized together with his household. We read of Paul's imprisonment, the start of it, also in Acts 16, verses 23 and 24. It says, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. He wasn't taking any chances. It was always... Likely, if you were the jailer and prisoners escaped, that you would be executed. But you know, when you're given special instructions, make sure to keep these ones secure. That if the prisoners escape, you're not long for this world, are you? So this is... This is the start of that church. Really, it's the beginning of the gospel being proclaimed in that whole region of Macedonia. And very, very humble beginnings. Beginnings that are filled with persecution. Very small beginnings. And yet, We don't see Paul looking at the work in Philippi as a failure, do we? What we see with Paul here in this letter that he writes is that he sees it as a huge, huge success. It's a glorious, glorious thing for him to see the fruit that has that God has brought about in this Philippian church. And so he is incredibly thankful for them. He knows the trials that they're going through, he knows the temptations that they're facing, he knows the false teaching that is uh, a temptation even to the church in Philippi, and yet he is able to say that he thanks God every time he remembers them. In all my remembrances of you, he's thankful. God has, Paul has seen the work of God in that body of believers. And how has he seen it? Well, jump down to verse 6. or verse 7, rather. And he says, 
it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So what is he saying there? What he's saying is, it's right for me to be so thankful for you because I have personally experienced the unity that we have in sharing together what? Defense, the defense and confirmation of the gospel and partaking of grace with him and in his imprisonment even he sees this. Why does he mention his imprisonment there? Well, one of the reasons is because many, many people desert Paul through the years of his ministry. Many people turn aside from him when he gets arrested, when he's in danger. Not all, but many. Paul has experienced this often. You think about the church in America today, I think about how large it is, and I mean, if, in particular, if you think of the mega churches that are themselves enough to be, uh, you know, a medium-sized town in attendance, okay, that sounds like an amazing amount of fruit, right? But what we have to, what we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what what fruit are we actually seeing? Paul says, I'm super thankful for this, not because the whole city of Philippi started going to church, right? What Paul says is, I am justified in being thankful for you all the time, little church at Philippi, because I've seen the fruit Because I've seen how God is at work. I've seen how you have participated in the gospel from the first day until now. In my imprisonment, you also were partaking of grace with me. What does that mean? It means that there's those who did not do that, right? Elsewhere, we read Paul talking about how all who were in Galatia deserted me. So think again about the church in America and ask yourself, if a pastor is arrested and put on trial for preaching the gospel faithfully in America today, what would be the likely thing that would be faithful preaching of the gospel that would be most likely to get somebody arrested today. It would have to be something that our culture absolutely hates about the gospel message, right? We're, 
we have a long history as a nation of being a Christian nation in, in one way or another, right? And so the gospel to say, Jesus died for your sins and you can be forgiven, isn't going to get anybody arrested, right? What would make people angry today at a preacher, angry enough to get him arrested? Well, you can step north a little bit into Canada, and you can get a picture of what is most likely here in the United States as well through the arrest, fining, imprisonment of those who speak God's truth on the issue of sexuality today. I don't think anything would be more likely to get a pastor arrested today in the United States as what we've already seen happen in Canada. A simple statement that God condemns homosexuality as a sin and that none who practice such things will enter the kingdom of heaven. That could be described as hate speech in some countries in the world and enough to put an end to being upfront in a church, right? Because the civil authorities will step in. Now, how many churches of 12,000 or 20,000 or 2,000 or 200 would stand with their pastor after he did that and got arrested. You may think, well, surely any, any decent church would, and yet what we see here is Paul, the apostle, the author of much of the New Testament, right? the founder of many of these churches, finding that even at that very beginning, that if, that if he's arrested, many abandon him. Many are unwilling to partake of the grace of God through that kind of suffering. With him. As a matter of fact, even in the work of church planting, we see that some who are working with him are unwilling to continue to do the hard work. You remember that John Mark abandons the work. He leaves when Paul and Barnabas are out planting churches. John Mark has gone with them, and in the middle he says... See ya, I'm going back home. It doesn't say he walked away from the faith. It doesn't say he, you know, it just says he left. But it meant something to Paul, didn't it? It meant something. Can you imagine what it meant to have somebody who was with you, helping you, and then who just said, eh, I think I'll leave now. Is that, is that what you want when somebody shows up to help you move? You're in the middle of it. 
carrying a couch down the stairs. They're like, hey, you know what? Uh, my show's starting. I'm going to head home now. Oh, well, okay, thank you for your help so far. I mean, you, <laughs> but <laughs> come on, give me a break, right? Barnabas was always willing to give people second tries. But when Paul and Barnabas are about to go out on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas insists that they are going to take John Mark, Paul says, you know what? I don't have any room for people like that in my work. It's too important. If you want to go, take John Mark, that's fine. And that's what happens. Barnabas and John Mark do their own thing. And the church prays for and sends out Paul. Interesting. Paul, I mean, are you really going to hold a grudge for so long? Be so particular? Here the church at Philippi has not abandoned Paul, even in prison. As a matter of fact, we find out later on in this book that the letter is prompted that he writes to them. This letter is prompted. Does anybody know why he writes this letter? Like the, the instigating fact. It's because they've sent him a gift. Support. And you know which other churches did that? None. None. So Paul is very thankful. (laughs) Very, very thankful for this church in Philippi. How could he not be? He has experienced what it is like to have people who are willing to suffer with him, to stand with him, even when he's in another place in jail. What a beautiful thing. I mean, the way we often want prophets to be is, you know, they were here, they got everything started. These crazy men like Paul who just don't know when to shut up, I mean, God has a purpose for them. It's basically to get things you know, sort of as a catalyst, and then the sooner that we can scoot them off to the next city, the better. Because there's just constant drama whenever somebody who's like that is around. And after he's gone, then, you know, we're happy to, we're happy to say, you know, yeah, I'm a follower of Paul. Some people are followers of Apollos. I I really like that Paul guy. But, you know, he's not here. That's the nice thing about being a follower of Paul when he's not around because you don't have to worry about, like, riots, for example. And you don't have to worry about whether you're going to stand with him. But the church at Philippi, he's not there and they're still standing with him. 
What a sweet, sweet relationship they have. Paul has seen the fruit of God at work in them. Of course, he's seen the fruit of God at work in all of the churches that he started, right? But what he is seeing in the present with the church in Philippi is their continuation in their willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to join with him in receiving grace by suffering with him. You say, well, how are they suffering? They're not in jail. He's the one in jail. And I say, well, when you associate with somebody who's in jail, when you say, yeah, He's the the pastor that founded the work here. He's the apostle. Or think here in America, you know, how quickly is a church going to distance itself from the pastor, you know, the former pastor quickly removed from the church website, right? And only as much pay as you can is is necessary to get him to sign saying that he won't refer to you as his church anymore. You guys may not realize that these kinds of negotiations happen with pastors and churches. Severance packages are can be just like uh, non compete and non disclosure agreement clauses. They're really messed up sometimes. And a lot of the time, it's because of this kind of thing. Not because the pastor has been faithful necessarily, but it's, it's you know, we don't want to have your name associated with us. Let's figure out a way to make this clear to the public. <clears throat> So how does the church at Philippi associate with Paul? How are they partakers of grace with him in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel? One of the ways is by giving sacrificially, financially to him. We know that giving money up that we have is a hard thing, right? I think all of us in this room know that. Unless we've never, for too young to have even figured out that money is this thing that allows us to get stuff we want, right? Once you figure that out, then voluntarily parting with it just to, to give it requires something of you, doesn't it? It requires self-sacrifice because you are giving up whatever you could have gotten with that money. The moment that you give the money up, right? So that's one of the things that you see. But also, simply by sending that money, at that time, you don't have... Well, I was going to say, you know... Western Union, but of course nobody uses that within America today. It still happens internationally, but you know, you don't have Apple Pay. You can't just like, hey, we took an offering, here's forty thousand dollars to support you for the next year in jail, because you know they don't feed you. 
And you have to pay for your housing, too. Some jail, right? (laughs) They have to send somebody from their church traveling. Traveling at this time is dangerous. It's not, this is part of what you see with Paul. It's not just that he faces uh, dangers of persecution in the city. He faces the dangers of the road, right? Robbers, bandits, storms, shipwrecks. This is part of the, the, the suffering that Paul lists for himself that he's gone through for the sake of the gospel. When they send somebody from their church to travel, and not just to travel, but to travel with money? Their money that they had sacrificially given? That takes something of them, doesn't it? Because who are you going to send? Are you going to send like, hey, you know, like, who's someone we can do without here for, uh, you know? Like, who's the least important person here? Okay, let's, let's send them over to the Apostle Paul with this huge offering that we collected. No, you're going to send somebody that you trust and love and that is going to be uh, a good representative of your church to the Apostle Paul and is going to be uh, able to bring back with him encouragement and strengthening, right? We see these kinds of things in Paul's letters. He talks about who he's sending and who he's receiving, and, and this matters who it is. As a matter of fact, when you get to the end of this book, we see in chapter 4, his description of their provision for him, starting in verse 10. and he returns to that theme. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And so this theme is from the beginning to the end, his joy and thankfulness to them and to God for the way that they associate with him that they care for him, they provide for him. But he has also seen that they share with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And this ultimately is the real test of whether he's seeing fruit, isn't it? It's not enough for them to simply uh, pay him But they need to stand on those same truths that he had proclaimed. You can't just say, you know, not abandon your pastor if he's arrested. Continue to provide for him. But totally change the message that the church is preaching. That does not encourage the pastor, right? 
oh, well, thanks for the money, I guess. I mean, what I really wanted to see was not money, but you standing firm in the faith. And so money wouldn't mean anything to Paul if they were not standing firm in the faith on the gospel. And that's why when he says he is confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, it is the central it is the central thing that he is thankful for. It's, the, it's, it's his central encouragement back to them. Now, why is he so confident? I mean, I've just gotten done talking about all of the wonderful relationship there. I've talked about how they're standing firm on the gospel. They're standing with him in his imprisonment and trials. They're needing to see and experience the same grace that he is from God. But what is his confidence in? The fact that they've done all those things? That's not, that's not it. His confidence, look at the verse, his confidence is in God. I am confident of this very thing. Not that you who began a good work of caring for me and standing firm on the gospel will continue to do that indefinitely because you're such good people. I mean, look at how good you are compared to all the other people who have abandoned me. No. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He takes this opportunity to strengthen them in their faith. He is not flattering them. He is not telling them, what a good job you guys have done. He's saying, God has produced fruit. And that's why he gives thanks to God. You understand? I mean, yes, he writes thanks to them. But what does he say at the beginning of the letter? I'm thankful to God, and I praise God, and I'm joyful. And every time I think of you, I thank God. Why? Well, because God is producing fruit. He's seeing the fruit that God is producing in them. And he knows that God, who began that work, will also complete that work. It's God's work, and Paul is seeing the fruit of it. Now, I want us to think of the temptations that we face in this area. Yes, we're tempted to turn aside from, to not associate with those who are suffering for the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ and his words, his gospel. But I think a big temptation that we face today is not believing that very thing 
verse 6, right? When he says, I am confident of this very thing. What is that very thing? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When we are tempted by Satan to doubt the goodness of God, often that is because we are evaluating our life not on the basis of God's work, not on the basis of him producing fruit, but rather we are evaluating everything on the basis of whether things we like are happening. You see, so we're healthy, we like it, therefore God is good. We're sick and in pain, we throw out our back, we have a disease, we get in a car accident, the transmission goes out, and now things that we don't like are happening. And we begin to think, well, I don't know, is God good or not? Life is so hard. Is God good? You see, this is not, an, this is not the way that Paul makes his evaluation, is it? What kinds of things had happened in Philippi and to the Philippians? The same kinds of things that had happened to him. Yes, many of them were, were joyful. God had provided for them such that they were able to take an offering and send money to him. That's, that's a blessing, right? That's one of those things we like. But also, all of the suffering that Paul went through and that they were going through with him, right? And so, Paul doesn't see, oh, you know, hey, you're standing firm in the gospel, but there's like bad things happening. I, I don't know, I guess... Maybe God's not in control. Maybe he's not good. Maybe he forgot about you guys. No. Paul sees those things, both the things that the Philippians like to experience and the things that they don't like to experience. And Paul says he is bringing the work that he began to completion. That's Beautiful, because it totally does away with our doubts. It totally does away with our false self-centered evaluation of this life and of God. Paul evaluates them on the basis of whether he is seeing God's work in them. And remember what... Hebrews says one of the clearest signs of God's work in somebody and his love for them is, remember Hebrews 12, what does it say? What's that sign? Discipline. Discipline. And and when we talk about discipline and you think, Well, you know, what does that exactly mean? Well, the answer is made pretty clear also in Hebrews when he says, it's never pleasant. (laughs) Right? So if it's something that's not pleasant, you think, okay, here I am. I'm in this life. I've got these trials. There's this hard thing. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's just something that you see is totally unrelated to any sort of spiritual endeavor. It's just like, 
oh no, I hit a deer last night. Or what am I going to do to provide? Or all those kinds of things, right? Paul says that he's thankful because God is going to bring the work he began to completion. And that work is demonstrated both in the things that we like and in the things we don't like, isn't it? And this is why Paul is able to sing when he is in jail. Wasn't it in Philippi that he was singing in jail with his... Now I've forgotten. I get confused sometimes. I think it was in Philippi. So here you have this example, right? Does anybody like being in jail? Does anybody like having their hands shackled, being in the inner? You know, it's like the dungeon part, right? No. And yet, Paul and his companions who are arrested with him are singing. Why? Well, because they know that God is at work producing his fruit, both in the things that are pleasant and in the things that are unpleasant. And he sees that here with the church of Philippi, and it's a beautiful thing. So when you face difficult things in your life, and we all face many things that are unpleasant in this world, do you assume that Satan is right? Oh, you know, God must be... God must not be very kind. God must not be very gracious. I don't know about this whole worshiping God thing. Or maybe a different way, same, same lie from Satan, a different way of looking at it would be, oh, I don't know if he can really be trusted to take care of us, our family. Or maybe another line, you know, oh, I don't know if he's really in control You know, maybe this is just like Satan winning some of the time. Or or another way of looking at it, again, the same lie from Satan. Saying, I just don't know if I can worship a God that lets bad things happen. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul is perfected through going to prison. The work of Jesus Christ in him is being brought to completion. It's being perfected in him by having most of the churches abandon him. It's being brought to completion in him also by having Philippi stay with him and send him money at the last minute after a long wait, you know, when they're finally able to. 
both the good and the bad. And it's the same in Philippi. He sees it with them. He sees the fruit. He says, you know, God is at work. It's, it's at work in things that, we, that are pleasant and in things that are not pleasant. And you stood with me and you're receiving God's grace in all of it with me. What a promise we have. I want to read Psalm 138, verse 8. We read this in family devotions earlier this week. It says, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. What are the works of his hands? We are. We are what he is doing. We are what he is working on. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Let's pray.